0: All right. Well, today we are continuing in the book of Malachi. We're going to be finishing it today. So we are in chapter 4. For those of you who like to follow along in your scriptures, we're in Malachi chapter 4. As we're coming into the Christmas season, have you ever wondered what it would be like to live in a time where prophecy is fulfilled? I've often wondered what the fulfillment of all prophecy would look like. I wonder if I had been in that time when the central prophecy of the coming of Christ was actually fulfilled, if I would have recognized it. Because kind of knowing myself, what would I have thought of a bunch of shepherds that came running into town saying that they had seen angels sing to them? Would I have recognized it as a fulfillment of prophecy? If I was the innkeeper and there was this couple that came to town and the woman was obviously heavily pregnant and about ready to have a kid, would I have acted differently than the, than the innkeeper that put them into the barn? Or did he put them into the stable, into the barn, because that was all that was available in the town? Would I have thought more deeply about it? And when all these people came into town claiming they had seen angels sing and that there was this birth of the king of kings, in this manger, would I have thought, wow, I am witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy? Or would I have thought, maybe everyone's just gone a little bit crazy? Maybe those shepherds got into something that they shouldn't have gotten into. Maybe they've been into that wacky tobacco a little bit too much, and, and now they're thinking they're seeing angels and, he, and uh, God's born among them. What would I have thought? What would you have thought? Fortunately, we live in a time where we can look back over the events of history we can look back over the, over the verification of the story, the validity of the story, and we can say that the shepherds did indeed witness a divine truth. So today, as we finish up the book of Malachi, especially this last chapter, I have to admit it's a difficult chapter. It's one that kind of gave me fits because, well, it deals again with prophecy. And as you can imagine, every, everyone has an opinion about prophecy. Every dog and frog has an opinion about the prophetic and what it means. And as you dig through the commentaries and you look through the original languages, it doesn't make it any easier because the very nature of prophecy is a hard one to really deal with. We've talked a lot about biblical prophecy lately in the last six months or so, and this wasn't really planned by me. I suppose I should I should say that oh this is all this was planned, so it sounds like i I you know know what I'm doing, but it wasn't really planned for by me. When we went through the Gospel of Matthew, I didn't go into it with the thought that we'd be hitting chapter 24, which deals a lot with the prophetic, and that we'd end up doing a Bible study kind of exclusively on that for several weeks. And then we'd go into Malachi with, again, dealing with a lot of prophecy. And as we go through Malachi, I've told you before, one of the reasons why I wanted to go through Malachi is because it, it, as an Old Testament book, it's probably one of the most Easily transferable to our lives to understand, okay, they were dealing with uh, bringing unclean or unfit gifts uh, for sacrifice. They were bringing the lame and the blind. It's easy to take that concept and transfer it over into our lives. Do we bring our best to God? Or do we bring, in a sense, our lame and our unfit as a, quote, quote, sacrifice to God? Or the area of marriage when he talks about, you know, remain with the wife of your youth or your spouse of your youth. That's an easy thing to transfer over. But then there's those passages of Malachi, which are interesting from our perspective because they very often deal with the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. And we can look back on it and see it as prophecy fulfilled. But this last chapter of Malachi, it's interesting because we've mentioned in the past that kind of the difference between prophecy dealing with the first advent and prophecy dealing with the second advent is the second advent has a tendency to have what I call kind of explosive elements to it. You know, there's kind of the, the apocalyptic sense, you know, the death, destruction, all these things going on, and then Christ comes back. But in the fourth chapter of Malachi, you see some of those same elements. And yet, he's talking about the first advent. So let's take a look at what it says, and then we'll go through it more, more slowly. So Malachi chapter 4, this is the entire chapter. It's only six verses long. And just a reminder for those of you who, who may not be aware, when these books were written, Old Testament and New Testament, they didn't have chapter and verse to them. So sometimes the break in them can seem a little bit artificial. But it's helpful for us because we can kind of use it as an address system to find things. But he says this surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming, and that day that is coming will set them on fire says the Lord Almighty, not a root or branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. So when we talk about prophecy, and we've talked about it before, prophecy tends to be very wide in scope. Sometimes it's non-linear. It's not necessarily following a linear pattern. Sometimes the way that we read prophecy, we kind of get different epochs of, of history going on in different uh, kind of in a jumbled sort of way that it's presented. Not often, but sometimes. And what we need to remember about prophecy is coming from the ultimate point of view. It's coming from God's point of view, and it's coming from the point of view of what God sees as significant. And it uses language which emphasizes the significance of how God sees things. And a good example of kind of the difference between the way the world sees things and the way God sees things is the uh, stories around this king named Ahab. How many of you are familiar with Ahab in the Old Testament? Just a little. So Ahab was a king, an unrighteous king. He was married to a woman named Jezebel. And uh, in, the, in the old days, you'd hear some preachers talk about the Jezebel, that woman of evil and sin, you know, because she was a she was a very dark influence in uh, Ahab's life. And the and, but what's interesting, if you look at world history, uh, you look at extra biblical history, uh, particularly in uh, in like Egyptian hieroglyphs and things like that. Ahab's father, from the world's point of view, his name was Omri. Ahab's father was much much more significant in the world point of view. Now you probably haven't heard a lot about Omri, other than he's mentioned in the Bible as Ahab's father. Because from God's point of view, Ahab's story was much more significant because you had the presence of the prophet Elijah during the time of Ahab. You didn't have a significant prophet ministering to the people of Israel during the time of Omri. And so Omri, from God's point of view and from the biblical point of view, isn't really all that significant. Even though from the worldly point of view, we have much more history outside the Bible of Omri than we do of Ahab. But because Elijah was very active, well, that's when he was active. He was active during the reign of Ahab. When we read the scriptures, Ahab seems to be much more of a prominent king. But not because he was more powerful or more significant, but because Elijah was. The work of God at that time was much more significant, and that's what the Bible points to. And prophecy is very much the same way. There are things which take place that from God's point of view are much more significant than what the world would see. The birth of Christ is a prime example. From the world's point of view, what's significant about this young peasant couple that comes to a small town, Bethlehem, and ends up having a child in a, in a, in a barn or in a cave that was used by animals, laid in a feeding trough? That's what a manger is. That's what you fed the animals out of. Not significant. From the world's point of view, this isn't a king of kings. This is just some kid, some poor kid. Born not even in a house. And certainly not something that would merit the choir of angels singing praise to a bunch of shepherds. But it was extremely significant in the eyes of God. So you have to remember that when you read prophecy. Sometimes the way things are presented seems to us like, like, wow, this is a lot of presentation for something that, that... from, from maybe the way we see it actually happening in the world around us doesn't seem as significant as, as what's going on according to the prophecy. And this is a good example of this. This is very much the case in the final chapter of Malachi. Because in the book of Malachi, the prophet has been addressing all these griefs and gripes that the people have who have returned from exile to Jerusalem. And to kind of put it in a nutshell, the attitude was this, that these people had been taken into exile... The kingdom of Israel had been destroyed 150 years before the kingdom of Judah was completely destroyed. These exiles were from the kingdom of Judah. They were taken to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. For all intents and purposes, the Jewish people and the Jews and the kingdom of Israel and everything that that had represented no longer existed. And like many, many different tribes that have disappeared from history, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Israelites seemed to be on that same path of extinction. But then this thing happened that, that, there, that the, the king of Persia, who had then, they had conquered the Babylonians, he, had, uh, he took mercy on this cupbearer named Nehemiah. And he was saying, what are you all sad about? What's your problem? And he says, my city's in ruins. My people are pretty much destroyed. And this king said, well, go back and rebuild the city. And there was only a small group that went back. People tend to think, all oh, this mass migration would go back from Babylon into, into Israel. But it was a minority that went back. And when they went back, they went back with praise and joy that they had been given favor of this king who was a pagan, but he gave him favor. And they managed to rebuild the temple. It took some time. They were a little disappointed with, you know, it wasn't quite the splendor of Solomon's. They said they wept. Actually, some of the ones that could remember what, it had, what the Solomon's temple looked like, they, you know, meh. And then they rebuilt the walls. You you read that in the book of Nehemiah. They rebuilt the walls. There was a prophet named Ezra that was also kind of going along with him. Nehemiah was sort of the secular uh, administrator of the whole thing. Ezra was the prophet. And they felt extremely privileged to be in this place. But as the years went by, the people living in Jerusalem began to see that what they had done had been a sacrifice that they had given God, and God really wasn't following through on what they expected from their sacrifice. They began to say, you know, well, God, we came from Babylon. We came back to this city which is basically reduced to a pile of rocks on a hill, and we rebuilt this temple, and we rebuilt these walls, and it doesn't seem like things are going our way the way that we think they should be going our way. And they began to kind of feel like God had given them a bad deal. And it's not so different from people who, in their early Christianity, they, they're all excited because they, they have that, that feeling of forgiveness. And they, they have that feeling of, you know, I have a significance that goes beyond just living this life and dying and being put into the ground. But I have an expectation that goes beyond this. And if, especially if they've come out of a place of, of sin that had been debilitating their life. And they have this freedom from that sin and they're excited for the Lord. And then as the years go by, they start feeling like, but you know what, having to... Having to come to church on sunday morning that, that that seems like quite a sacrifice lord and you know this tithing thing nah, that, that seems like a, that's a bit much to ask and over the years we go from being joyful in our faith to feeling like god's kind of asking a bit too much of me this is where the israelites were in their return to jerusalem in the time of malachi they had lost the joy of their salvation. The, the King David writes about it. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. They were in that place of needing that joy restored. They were tired of seeing those that they felt like were the pagans around them who were getting away with extortion, with bribery, and a bunch of other sins that, they, frankly, if you were to be honest with them, they probably wished they could get away with too and didn't understand why God wasn't punishing them. And he seemed to be so hard on them. Why wasn't he punishing the pagans when he seemed to be holding them, the Israelites, to accountability? Didn't seem fair. So Malachi kind of ends with sort of what they seem to want. He says this to him, Surely the day is coming and will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming. And that day which is coming will set them all on fire. Says the Lord Almighty, not a root or a branch will be left of them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of righteousness will rise like healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day that I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. So Malachi ends by giving the people this prophecy that they probably really like. They're like, Yes! The evil are going to suffer. They are going to burn, and we're going to dance like calves released from the stall. And the picture is kind of interesting. The sun is rising up. It's like we talked about how how judgment isn't necessarily like uh, there's this thing that happens to the bad, and there's this thing that happens to the good. It's one thing that happens, and kind of whatever side you're on, of judgment depends on how you receive it. And so he has this idea the sun is rising and the evil are like a bunch of brooding vampires caught out in the sun. Ah, they burn. But if you're on the side of God, you rejoice. There's healing in that sun. And you dance with the ashes of the enemies under the soles of your feet. A little bit of uh, in there for those that want to see a, a little retribution take place there. And it'd be easy to say, that this is clearly a second Advent prophecy because it has these, I call them explosive elements in it, right? Except for verse 5. Verse 5 kind of comes in here and you go, whoa, 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 verse 5 changes the meaning of this whole thing because verse 5 says this. It says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and terrible day comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And this one little verse changes this passage entirely. Because if we don't have this verse, then we can just easily slot this into Malachi has kind of a first Advent prophecy and a second Advent prophecy at the end. But we know, because we have the the Scripture, we have the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, that this coming of Elijah was fulfilled in John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. He wasn't Baptist. I say this every time, and some of you are probably tired of hearing this, but there's some folks who need to know. He wasn't Baptist in the sense that we're the International Baptist Church of Dusseldorf. But he was John the Baptizer. He was going and he was baptizing people in preparation for the coming day of the Lord. And Jesus identifies him as the Elijah meant to come. In Matthew 11, uh, 12 through 15, it says this, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. This is Jesus speaking. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, speaking John the Baptist, not John the gospel writer, but John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, John, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And Luke, chapter 1, verse 17, again, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah about his son who becomes John the baptizer. He says, he, John the baptizer, will go out before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. So there he he quotes Malachi uh, in this prophecy of the coming of of John the Baptist. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So both these passages, actually, both of them, chapters, uh, refer directly to Malachi. Uh, The Matthew passage, if you read chapter 3 of Malachi, you'll see the exact words used. And the chapter 4, you see, we just read, it's in there. So what's going on here? Where's all the fire and the smoke? Where's the wicked crumbling? Where's, Where's the righteous dancing like calves released from the stall with the ashes of their enemies under the soles of their feet? Where is this? Was Jesus wrong in believing he was the fulfillment of Scripture? Are we wrong in how we've interpreted this prophecy? Because Jesus interprets it for us. Questions like these are why today a lot of rabbis, Jewish rabbis will teach, and a lot of Jews to this day don't believe Jesus was the Messiah because they say he did not fulfill the expectations in the way that we think it should be fulfilled. Where was the fire and smoke? Where were the calves being released? Where was the nation of Israel being put back on top? Is really what they're getting at. And so this comes back to the nature of prophecy. See, we have the benefit of believing the New Testament is the Word of God in addition to the Old Testament. And that we read the Old Testament through the New Testament. We read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And the New Testament does redefine the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament, Jesus often says, when you read, uh, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which I make reference to all the time, if you've been here for a while, he always will say, He'll often say, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He'll say, you've heard it said, and then He'll quote an Old Testament idea. And then He'll say, but I tell you. And what He's doing there is Jesus is redefining the Old Testament. And who has the right to redefine the Word of God? Who has that right? Do you have that right to redefine God's Word? If you're wondering, no, you don't. Do I have that right? No. And sometimes society wants us to redefine the Word of God. Redefine this. I don't like how this sounds. Redefine it. Live it differently. But we don't have that right. Only God has the right to redefine God, God's Word. And that's what Jesus does. You've heard it said, but I tell you. It tells you something about who Jesus was. That he could redefine these things and put his own meaning on it. And so he says, you are expecting the literal Elijah to show up. But I'm telling you, John the Baptist was Elijah. That is the fulfillment of the scripture. It wasn't Elijah who's the the son of, you know, Papa Elijah and Mama Elijah. I don't know what their names were. But it's John fulfilling the role of Elijah. And he even says it, if you're willing to accept this, this is how it is. Because Jesus knows that some aren't going to be willing to accept that because it's not fulfilling the prophecy in the way they expect it to be fulfilled. And to this day, people don't believe in Christ among a certain group of folks because he does not fulfill prophecy in the way that they expected it. But if you understand what we see in the New Testament, if you allow the New Testament to define the Old Testament, then in fact we do see that there is this joy like the calf being released from the stall. You see it in John 3, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 21. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict. Verdict means the final decision. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and they will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that, they may be, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So notice that from the perspective of John's gospel, the coming of Jesus and his presence and his death and his resurrection Forced the issue of righteousness in humanity. It forced us to look at what it means to be righteous and make a decision on what side of the cross are we going to stand. Just like the rest of judgment that is going to be coming, the cross was, in a sense, a center point of judgment in history. And it depends on what side of the cross you're at. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You see, when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, and again, you kind of have this, this especially if you remember we went through the Gospel of Matthew, kind of this almost apocalyptic type language where the sun is darkened, the graves split open, you know, all these things happening around that time. It was, this, it was this time of judgment. It's the center point of history. And Jesus doesn't just die on the cross in order to condemn sin. He doesn't die on the cross just to give everyone salvation. He dies on the cross so that the issue of righteousness is something that we have to deal with. We can't just hide from it, ignore it, say that, well, uh, there's no way out. He dies on the cross and is resurrected so that his words, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, becomes a point where we have to choose which side are we going to be on. Because the scripture says, that those who believe are no longer condemned. If you believe in the effectiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, put your faith in that he died for your sins, so then you can then be given credit for righteousness. You're not fully righteous yet, but you be given credit for it. Then you're not condemned. You come out of it. But if you don't, if you don't believe in that, then you stay in the default place that every human being is in, which is in the place of having sinned and in a place of condemnation. You just stay there. And making no decision is a decision. It's like getting dropped in the middle of traffic. Like You're, you're going on the Autobahn. And all of a sudden you find yourself dropped into the middle of the Autobahn and all these cars are coming at you, trucks, vehicles, whatever. And you have a choice. One of your choices is I'm going to defy the traffic. I will stand. I am a rock. I am an island. I am a man unto myself. Behold, semi-truck, you are not going to... End of that story. Or you can be dropped in the middle of that traffic and say, all right, I'm just going to curl up into a little ball and let everything go by me. And then as you curl up into the little ball, sooner or later, you get run over. Or... There's a light on the side that says, run this way and run fast toward the light. And you go, okay. And you run to the light and you're saved. It's it's like that simple, really. People who choose to follow what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, choose to believe God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. You run to that light. You receive that salvation. You, if you've really been there, you know this is true. At that first time, when you first really grasped that you were a sinner, not just some random, yeah, I've done bad things, but you really dug deep and you're like, yeah, I'm really out of step with God. And then you realize that you were saved and you felt that weight go off your shoulders and the spirit go in you. your heart, if you're anything like I was, danced like a calf lit out of the gate. There was a freedom there. I remember that freedom. You know, I've told you before, I was actually, I came to Christ in Germany. I was hitchhiking around after high school. uh, Hitchhiking around. Started in Amsterdam, so you can imagine how the beginning of my trip was. And, And if you're thinking, is that what he means? Yeah, it was that. And then some. And it ended My trip in Europe ended with giving my life to Christ. And you're like, how'd you get from point A to point B? Well, it's it's a bit of a story we won't get into here, but it did. And man, I was like that calf from Newgate. I was like like a little puppy. His tail was wagging. I've told you the story. I went to university. I didn't care about university. I just cared about Jesus. All I wanted to do was read the Bible. And that's all I did. And my grades reflected that, because I was not a religion major. I was an engineering major, and uh, I don't know if in Germany you can get a 6 or a 7 in your grades, but if you could, that's about what I did. For you Americans here, I got a .75 my first semester. .75, less than a 1 point. Now, that's as, as awful. For you Germans, like, well, it's better than a 1. No. <laughs> it's kind of the other way around in our system. A 4 is the best. 4 point, .75. They don't just hand those out. You kind of have to work to get a .75. But all I did, all I I cared about was Jesus. And those were great days. I'm glad I'm not that same person anymore, because, you know. But there are times that when I get kind of down about my faith, it's like restoring to me the joy of my salvation to remember I certainly was like a calf springing from a gate, dancing on on the fields of joy and hope. I really didn't think about the souls, you know, the ashes of my enemies under my soul. But certainly in that place of joy. And I think this is one of the things that, that we need to remember about the Scripture. I mean, look at, look at how these two Scriptures kind of compare and since we've been talking about the nature of prophecy. John 3, 19 through 21 says, Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for the fear their deeds will be exposed. I find that interesting, but this is true. Some people will choose to go to hell than to ever deal with their sin because they're afraid of what the temporary repercussions of their sin might bring into their life. So they will, they'll just put their head down and say, I'm not going to repent of anything because I don't want to have to deal with it. You're like, dude, you're talking about your eternity at stake here. And they're like, I'm not going to do it. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. And yeah, your deeds are exposed. They're certainly exposed to God. Hopefully they're exposed to you so you can truly repent of them, walk away from it, so that it will be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Now look at the Malachi one. Surely that day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left of them. For, for you who revere my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves, released from the stall. So what's the point of all this? Well, the reason why the Book of Malachi is so, I think, powerfully relevant to our lives today is because it deals with things which affect us. It's very easy to take some of the big issues in Malachi and just kind of transfer them over to us. Like I've already said. it's easy to see bringing the lame and the blind sacrifices to God. Well, that's kind of similar to us really not giving our best for the Lord. We're just kind of trying to slide through, giving Him as little as possible, but still have our salvation in place. And then, of course, you know, the fidelity aspect and the financial aspect, which uh, Miney shared with us last week, which uh, thanks, I appreciate Miney doing that. It's good to hear from, from other folks, other, other points of view, other voices now and then. But also... This is, a, this is a relevant passage because it reminds us that that advent of Christ is really the center point around which history pivots. If you ever read the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, there's this roll call. It starts off by saying what faith is. Faith is, you know, belief in those things not seen. And, and he goes through and then he begins to list all the people of faith. And they were considered people of faith because they were looking forward to what God was going to do. Now, I don't think that most of them, if you were to... Pin them down and say, what do you think are the details of what God's going to do? Do you believe that the coming Messiah is going to be mocked, spat upon, whipped, nailed to a cross, and killed? Most of them would be saying, what are you thinking? That would not have been their expectation, but they still believed in faith in what God was going to do. The details of it, they probably didn't get. And we're considered people of faith because we look back on the cross as that center point of history. We look back on what God has done. And we are in a blessed place. We have the word of God in whole. We have the history to look back upon. We even live, some of us live within a time where history was, was big, huge events have taken place. The restoration of the state of Israel is one of them. And we can look back and say, this is, verifies our faith over and over and over and over and over again. But it doesn't matter if you look back upon the cross as a turning point of faith and say, yeah, there's a lot of things going on, if you don't actually act upon that. If you stay in that place of unbelief, then you're still in the place of condemnation. It doesn't matter if you have an an intellectual assent that, yes, Jesus was a person, which, bizarrely, you have these YouTube things that say, Jesus is just a construct. He never existed at all. It's like, what? But I guess it's, it's a sign of the times. Truth has kind of gone out the window anymore. You have alternative facts. And they do that with everything now, including faith. So be aware of that. But how we respond to this center point of faith is how we respond to prophecy. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? I want to close by talking about so a, kind of an example of fulfilled prophecy. What does, it, what does it kind of mean to live in a place of fulfilled prophecy? One of my favorite pictures that I have in, in, my, uh, in my, our house, Cindy and I's house, our apartment, is this one of my grandparents. This is my grandma and my granddad when my grandmother was 17 and my granddad was 18. And it wasn't taken at the same time because my grandmother is actually older than my grandfather. But I've always kind of thought, you know, her name was Yuna, and her, his name was Burton. And I've often kind of looked at this and just kind of thought about where they were at that place in their life. My grandparents, especially my grandmother, came from a very poor family. And my grandfather came from a little bit better off family, but this was all relative. They were farmers, and his, his side of the family actually owned land. Her side of the family, her dad, worked for his family. Dad. He was a hired man and uh, didn't have anything. And, you know, I consider what they went through. They grew up in the 20s and the 30s, so they went through the, kind of the Depression. They grew up in the Depression. They were farmers during the Second World War, so my grandfather didn't go to the war. But, you know, that was a, that was a, a tense time for everybody. And then they went through, and, and again, had kids, didn't make any money, Until the 1970s, and all of a sudden, farmers started making serious money. And when I look at this picture of them, I can't help but also at the same time see this picture of them. Because this was the grandparents I knew. I didn't know 17- and 18-year-old Una and Burton. I knew 70-something Una and Burton and i didn't you know i didn't know them when they were this age they got married at 19 and they stayed together until they until my granddad died he died at the age of 86 so whatever the math is there you guys know i'm not big in math but this was their 60th anniversary i remember this particular event and when i look at this picture the way we have it in our house is kind of like this the picture of the the older one is kind of underneath and you have this younger one there And when I see it, I always see it together at the same time. And there's a part of me that that wonders what I would say to the young ones. What I say to them, you know, things are going to work out fine. I know you're worried about conflicts going on around you. And as trite as it may sound, believe it or not, God is in control. And there's going to be some things that come out of this conflict which are going to bend the course of history in a direction that no one saw coming And no one really expected to ever see happen. One, the establishment of Israel was one of those. Germany becoming a friend to the world was another one. Frankly, you know, most of the 20th century, people didn't really see that one coming. And now it is. And I would tell them, you know, I know you're worried about all your finances and if you're going to make it, but you're not going to lose the farm. In fact, you are going to expand the farm. And as you go to school now or you're trying to make do with your kids by having bread with bacon grease put on it because that's the only thing you'd afford, you're actually going to, when you die, you're going to be wealthy. You're going to be what you would consider in most of the world around you rich. And not just in a happy marriage. They loved each other. My granddad was in love with her from the age, some sixth grade. He gave her a ride to school on his bike because she had a broken arm and he was in love from that point on. And he stayed that way. He was like a teenager when he talked talk about her all his life. I always kind of wanted that. I think my grandma was a little bit more, you know, when my granddad retired and he wanted to go with her to her hairdressing appointments, it kind of bugged her, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it all turned out pretty good. And those times that you're thinking that everything is going to be lost, you're going to get through it. And I think this is the closest thing to really understanding prophecy. Things don't really turn out the way that we expect. If you were to talk to 17 and 18-year-old and Bert and Yuna and say, what do you expect your life to be? It would not have been what it turned out to be. But it was good. And from my perspective, as their grandson, who can see their whole story kind of all at one time, oh, there's no worries there. It just makes perfect sense. But they didn't know that because they still had to live it. This is kind of where we're at with prophecy in the Bible. The scripture is clear. At the end, God wins. And Jesus is that center point of history in the first advent. He's going to become the end of history in the second advent. At least this understanding of history. And then we go on to something else. The book of Revelation is just kind of the end of this chapter. And there's something after that. We don't know what it is, but there's something. It's great and it's glorious. It's glorious. But what we need to do is make sure we get to the end of the story and we're still alive. We still have life in Christ. I think God looks at history and prophecy and it's like, I've got this under control. You guys might not believe it, but I do. And when we say things like, God is good all the time, I have to admit that when I say that, I sometimes say that as a statement of faith. Not a statement of, unquestioning fact. But he is. That's a statement of faith. And as we prepare for the, to celebrate the birth of Christ in the next coming weeks, month or so, may we take the time to consider this child, which while we enjoy singing about him laying in a manger and the angels and all that, may we not forget that this child is destined to grow up and to take upon his shoulders the sins of humanity and to rise again, though, to prove that he's the victor over sin and death and he becomes the center point of history. And even though the nativity scenes are all peaceful and calm, there's going to be a great and dreadful day of the Lord when he is nailed to a cross and this event of his crucifixion and resurrection will reshape the fate of all humanity. As it forces upon us that question of righteousness. Those who believe in him are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already. Let us never forget who this child really is as we celebrate the coming of Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for the whole of your word, Old and New Testament. Thank you for how the Old Testament lays that foundation for the new. And Lord, help us to appreciate it all and to embrace it all as your word. And Father, as we uh, are going to go into the Advent season here starting next week, Lord, we pray that you would guide us in that journey, that it's not just a journey of you know christmas time and christmas markets which are great and celebrating and food and family and friends and all that good stuff the songs we enjoy the christmas plays the wonder of the child's eyes as they get ready for the coming of you know getting presents Woo! but maybe also remember that this time marks a life which changes history And it begins in a way which no one would ever regard as special. And it ends in a way that much of the world would regard as, well, a scandal, disgraceful. But then it has risen again in glory, showing us that all that you said was vindicated. And that the things you said about yourself were true. And so, Lord, may we walk in that place of hope and in joy. May we remember the joy of our salvation. And for those that, that hear me describing that joy of leaping like that calf from the stall as something they've never experienced, then, Father, we pray your Spirit would guide them and, and ask that question, why? What's missing? Because there is joy in the Lord. The joy that overcomes all circumstances. Because we know ultimately, We're on the side of life. So, Lord, we pray that as we go into this time, that you would help us to reflect deeply on what it means to believe in you who sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in you will not perish but have eternal life. And, Lord, also to help us to explain to people around us who see this time, this this really a time in Germany where There's a long and extended opportunity given to us to share the hope that really is found in Christ. May we take that opportunity and share with the people around us, friends, family, people we work with, in a way that is, like the Scripture says, with gentleness and respect. Share with them the truth and the hope that's found in Christ so that others can come into that kingdom and know life. Thank you and we praise you.